What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. The justice system is a misnomer in many ways, especially for who today's guests would refer to as black, brown, and broke folks. A lot of people fight for true criminal justice, but few have the opportunity to fight for it from the chair of the district attorney's office. Today's guest, District Attorney Mark Dupree, talks about that fight and the sad truth that not everyone is for a just criminal justice system. So uh, welcome back, everyone, to Lean In. I am here with another friend. It feels like everybody I've interviewed, I, I call them my friend, but I, they are my friends, and I, I just happen to have some cool friends. But today we have District Attorney Mark Dupree of Wyandotte County. DA Dupree, thank you so much for, for spending a, a little time to, to join Lean In today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Gibran. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. So for the people who may not be familiar with Wyandotte County, I want to just take a little time to hear the perspective of what is Wyandotte County from someone who not only is the district attorney of Wyandotte County, but was born and raised um, and is kind of a jewel of Wyandotte County. So for the people who who are unfamiliar, just tell us about Wyandotte County. So Wyandotte County is, uh, demographically speaking and geographically speaking, it is the fourth largest county in the state of Kansas. It is the most diverse county in the state. And there's only three other counties in the nation that is as diverse as we are. We have about 30% African-Americans, about 30 plus percent of Hispanics and about 30 plus percent of uh, Caucasian and then a little bit of everything else. And so it's, uh, it's not if you would, a majority uh, of anything except for a majority minority uh, in this this county. And so the diversity in this community is phenomenal. uh, And it is a jewel. uh, As I tell people, we are in the heart of the state of Kansas and Kansas is the heart of the country. So we are the the beating heart of of this country. Uh, I grew up here, born and raised here in the inner city and my parents were local pastors. And so uh, growing up here, one of the things that I found in this wonderful, diverse community is that the criminal justice system were absolutely disproportionately affecting black and brown folks and broke folks in a uh, way that was definitely pushing us away from the system uh, unless we were going to be incarcerated. And so I grew up experiencing that and seeing that uh, and 
with that, my thought process was, I love this county. I grew up in this county. There was a lot that was invested uh, in me in this county. And so I wanted to do my part in the criminal justice system to, to make it better and to try to make it uh, uh, as it is labeled, uh, about justice, uh, rather than simply, a, another system. And so, you know, Mark and I went to college together and I, I went to college with a lot of people from Wyandotte County. Most of them were from Kansas city within Wyandotte County. And there is a certain pride that people from the dot, as they call it, have. That's it. It, it, it was unlike anything I've ever seen. First of all, I, I was not familiar with people repping the county. They don't, they don't do that in Oklahoma. They don't do that in most places, but they rep their county. And they rep the And dot. we rep it hard. They we rep, rep it uh, hard. <laughs> very, very. So, you know, also, though, I noticed from the people from Wyandotte County is that they about as tough as it came. You know, um, a lot of people had to grow up a certain way. Um, and that combination of growing up a certain way and then that pride was unlike anything I've ever seen. And so some of my closest friends are from Wyandotte County. And I am really happy that Wyandotte County has someone like you fighting for them. But you didn't start out in the DA's office. You didn't start out in prosecution. Tell me about uh, your kind of introduction to the legal system when you got out of law school. So when I got out of law school, I went to work for a a judge as a, a law clerk in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. We call that the other Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But I, you know, uh, in, in Wyandotte County, we got the Kansas City, Kansas side. But when I graduated from law school, funny story, uh, it was my second year in law school. And there was I was a part of the, the Black Law Student Association. And there was a speaker, a judge, an African-American judge who came and he spoke to us. Uh, and at that time, you remember back in college days, everybody made cards, you know, everybody was a professional, uh, yeah. and you just put the year you graduated. Hopefully somebody remembers you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this judge spoke and, uh, his assistant, when the speech, the speech was over, was walking out and she came up to me. She says, uh, what is your name, young man? And I told her my name, I'm Mark Dupree. And uh, in fact, here, take my car. Uh, feel free to call me anytime. And she just smiled and, and walked away. Well, two years later, I graduate from law school. I recall sitting on my couch and I received a phone call. The lady on the other end says, you know, I'm Judge Gillis is uh, assistant. We met uh, two years ago and you gave me your card and I had to think real hard. And I said, oh, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. How are you? She says, I'm great. Are you looking for a job? I'm sitting there thinking, dear God, am I looking for a job? <laughs> well, uh, our, the judge just had a, a, a law clerk opening and she was with us for 10 years and she left uh, to do Peace Corps and Judge uh, uh, wanted me to reach out to you. You made a good impression of him to uh, on him to see if you were interested. I said, "Well, I haven't passed the bar yet. Not a lawyer." And so, you know, I thank you for the opportunities because in Missouri, to be a law clerk, you had to be a lawyer because you handle the filings and so on and so forth. And and so she said, well, no, 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 that's wonderful. Uh, do you plan on taking the bar? I said, yes, ma'am. She's like, okay, well, good. Do you need a job before you take the bar? I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so, Perfect. So I go in for this interview, all that being said, I got this job 
from a judge that I met two years prior uh, to randomly get my card. And while I was there, I passed both the Kansas bar and the Missouri bar, stayed there for 18 months as a law clerk, and then went over to the prosecution side, which was right upstairs from uh, my office there in the courthouse uh, for the Jackson County prosecutor's office uh, and did that for a little while. And then I came back to Kansas because uh, there's no place like home. Yes, yes. About the yellow brick road leading me back there. And uh, I was a public defender uh, in Johnson County, Kansas, uh, for about three years until my wife convinced me to come on out and practice uh, with her. She was doing family law at that time. And I became a criminal defense lawyer, private criminal defense lawyer, uh, and we did that for about four years until, uh, the Lord said, go ahead and run for DA. So yeah. that was kind of my, my pathway to, to where I'm at. Wonderful. Well, I think what has always intrigued me about your story is the fact that you are a Wyandotte County kid. Not everyone in Wyandotte County is able to achieve the success, uh, that you are able to because of a lot of factors, right? But as a Wyandotte County kid, you came back to Wyandotte County to run for public office. I mean, you came back to run for district attorney. And here we are, this Wyandotte County kid running for district attorney against a pretty well-established DA. The incumbent had been DA for how long at this point? He was the DA for 12 years and was the assistant to the DA for 25 years prior to that. Almost 40 years. <laughs> One, how did you how did you know that you had a good chance to win and how did you position yourself to win? Because I remember watching uh, and cheering and being excited for you. So tell us about that. It was when did I know that I was going to win? I I didn't, man. I'm going to be honest with you. It was a scary time frame. It was a spooky time frame. And, you know, my uh, faith really led me and to, to whomever and whatever faith people believe in, mine was God. And I was praying, asking God for direction. And it was literally, I ran in 2016, but it was four years prior to that, back in 2012, when I believe the Lord told me to run. And I'll tell you uh, what I did because I did not feel like I was able to win. I didn't feel like I was qualified to run. I didn't, I, there had never been a prosecutor sitting in this chair that looked like you and I. And so there was this thing called fear that jumped in. Uh, and in 2012, what I did is rather than running against uh, uh, the predecessor, I wrote a check. And I went to his campaign headquarters and I gave him money just to seal and solidify that I'm not running against him, right? Even though the Lord had told me to at that point. And about a year after that, things began to really show even more concerning the uh, desperate impact and concerning the uh, overpopulation of prison, concerning the amount of folks who were going to prison uh, in our community, uh, the, the literally, the, uh, uh, some going for 15 years and while others are getting probation. And now as a private defense lawyer, I'm seeing it because I'm here and, and I'm watching it and I'm coming into this office and I'm trying to convince them to do something different. And, uh, and it wasn't changing. And so I had, uh, 
worked at this office when I was still in law school. And so I got up close in person and saw some of the things that they were doing. Uh, so about two years after I said, no, I'm not doing it. It was very clear. And the Lord was like, are you, are you ready yet? Are you done running? Uh, and so at that point I, you know, prayed and talked to my wife and got my wife on board and, uh, we start really talking with the community and I didn't let anybody know I was running. I was just as a, a minister, I was associate pastor at the time. So I was already involved in the community and in many outreaches and many nonprofit organizations. And so I had their ear and now it was time for me to show my face. And so for about a year and a half, I did that. And it was hilarious because everyone thought I wanted to be a judge. And so I had the establishment come to me and they said, Mark, we just want to make sure uh, that we don't have to worry about you uh, running for judge because it was just two years prior that my brother ran and he beat the establishment to become a judge here. So they were looking at me and they were like, oh, crap, not another one. of We're going to have two. We're going to have two of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, listen, listen, man, I, 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 number one, if I wanted to run for judge, I would, but I could please be rest assured, tell all of your political folks. That's not me. I don't want to be a judge. So I'm not running for judge now. I didn't lie. <laughs> <laughs> you did. And so, uh, so literally about, uh, it was the uh, January of 2016 and the primary was in August. And at January, the, the New Year celebration, we usually have a, a big breakfast at my house for all of my family. And I have a huge family. So it was 7,500 folks in my house. And uh, I let my family know this is what we're doing. And then the next day, I had signs all across Wyandotte County because for the last year and a half, I had been working and talking and working and talking. And so it came as a huge surprise to the to whole the whole county. It was like, who is this guy? What is happening? And the incumbent was in his mind was, oh, that's just the intern that I had all them years ago. I'm not worried about it. Mm, okay, I, I'm sure he 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 thinks different now. Yeah, <laughs> the rest is just wow. So yeah, we I, I want to at some point I think I'm gonna have to bring you back because I could see a really interesting discussion about just running for public office. But I want to talk about that office and the whole reason that I really have gained an interest in what's going on in the criminal justice space has a lot to do with a book that you actually recommended for me, uh, which was charged. Uh, by Emily no, Bazelon. And in that book, she suggests that really the road to criminal justice reform must go through the prosecutor's office. Um, you're in that book a lot. She actually talks about you and this wave of progressive DAs all across the country. I want to hear your your thoughts on, you know, that that comment that that she she makes and that really the whole idea behind the book and and what it was like really starting out and, and trying to push forward this progressive agenda. So, you know, Emily's book is amazing. Uh, she's a, an awesome author and what she's done uh, in this particular space, I think it's commendable. And so it was a pleasure to 
to speak with her in, in her endeavors on that. Progressive prosecutors, which I, I really just take the title of holistic prosecution. It is about being holistic. It's about saying, okay, what has worked and what hasn't worked, right? Let's take out what hasn't worked. Let's utilize what has and then try something new. Uh, and so her comment that prosecutors, uh, it, it, uh, we're the ones that you have to come through. It's, it's a reality because the way the system works is that in order for a case to be filed, it's the prosecutor who has to do it. Regardless what happens on the street, regardless what happens in the courtroom, regardless what, how many people is in, are, are in jail or in prison, it's the prosecutor that literally holds the key to these cases. If the prosecutor does not utilize their discretionary authority to charge a case, it won't be charged. I don't care what crime happened. If the DA says there's not enough evidence or I simply decline to charge this case and this individual, it doesn't happen, right? And so when we're looking at the amount of people that we have, right? The, the mass incarceration uh, problem that we have in this country. Uh, it's because we have prosecutors who, without thinking about the consequences of how many people you're locking up, simply charge, 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 charge. And the reason why was because there was such a, uh, I would like to say, a, a family type relationship between law enforcement on the grounds, right? Because we're all law enforcement. But the fact is you have police officers and then you have the DA's office, both carry badges. What happened was there was this sense of, of respect and loyalty that anything that the police said needed charging, the DA's office traditionally would simply charge it, right? And there was no real looking into and finding out if this is the right person. We're just trusting our, our family. We're just trusting what they say. And of course, we, we can go into history and find out about the systematic racism that is ever present in the policing department and in DA's offices across the country and then with our entire criminal justice system. And so you put an African-American man in front of 12 jurors of his peers and all of them are white men or white women who grew up with a bias against black, brown, and broke folks, it, there's nine times out of 10, they're going to be found guilty. Whether or not there was evidence or not, did the officer say it? To accept the reality that those flaws exist in our system was the first step that many holistic prosecutors had to, to, to reason in their mind, that there are flaws in this system, there's discrimination in this system, and that we hold the key. But we can't fix it unless we're willing to accept that that's a problem. And once we do, then, right, the next step is, which is where Emily really deals in, is dealing with the fact that you have to deal with so many folks who push back against that, who push against, who push against bringing justice to the justice system. It's unheard yeah. of. I mean, my, my next comment was, well, I'm sure there was no pushback. <laughs> right. Everybody wants the justice system to be just. And you let you I mean, I could you I obviously couldn't have said it any better. Uh, and, and at this point, you've you've you ran for D.A. again and your opponents had the luxury of of witnessing your progressive agenda for four years and your subsequent 
election, it was pretty rough on you. Yeah. Tell us about that when you, you know, have done more than probably most DAs in trying to bring justice to the justice system. And this is the thanks that you get, you know, Uh, talk, talk to us about that. Well, it was, it was definitely uh, pressure. It it was like a pressure cooker, right? It was, it was, um, if you're talking about uh, what, what do they call it? Monday morning quarterbacking. Right. And so I had uh, uh, my opponent as well as all of these other folks uh, who had something to say about what I had done, what I was doing. And I seen nastiness of people. Right. And it was nastiness of people who had titles, who were in positions of authority throughout our city. From uh, the courthouse to city hall to our policing agency, these are you know the folks I work with during the that that election. The lies, the hatred, the racist remarks that came out toward not just me but my family, my wife. It was very concerning. I had teachers making comments to my children. My daughter was a sixth grader and she came home and was told by folks at school that uh, your father uh, uh, is in bed with cop killers. And so these things were constantly coming. I'll never forget the moment that I had to turn what I believe was one of the most racist moments in my election uh, to a teachable moment to my. 10-year-old black son. And that was when we were driving home and one of my big posters had been wrote on and marked out and some comments uh, were then splattered all over Facebook concerning me and social media. And my son, he said, daddy, why did they do this to you? And I had to ply or pry my, my wife's arms off of my son as I took him to go and take the sign down and put a new one up, but have a conversation about him uh, to him about the realities of the racism and the discrimination in this country and about how people feels about his daddy uh, and about some of the things that his daddy has to do. It's not just the chief law enforcement official, but as the first black elected chief law enforcement officer in the in the state uh, and where racist folks hate that. But how we can't allow those things to stop us from doing what we're meant to do. And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, if I was afraid of what people thought about me and what they were going to say about me and I didn't do my job, imagine what would happen to the people who are in prison wrongfully. And I gave him the example of Mr. Lamont McIntyre, who was in prison for 23 years for a double homicide he didn't commit. And Lamont had to wait for your daddy to become the DA to actually look at the evidence of his case, to get him out of prison, and then for the state attorney general to exonerate him. But if I would have stopped because of what people are saying, what people do, and how much people hate me, that man would never receive his freedom. That's where election and the hate that I I, I deal with and the racism that I deal with and the pushback that I deal with, I compare that to folks like Lamont McIntyre or folks like Pete Coons 
who was released after 12 years for murder he didn't commit and died 108 days later. It's these individuals that I compare what I'm going through to the freedom that they did not have for all of those years because of a system that is flawed. And it says to me, despite what I go through, it's not as bad as what they had to deal with. And it's many more people who need me and folks like me in this seat who's willing to accept the flaws, correct them, don't just apologize, but pull the file, look at the evidence, correct it, and then move forward. Wow. And you are needed and you have per- persevered and you've pushed through to, to, to do what's right. And I remember a couple years ago, you had me come in and do some implicit bias work with your your office. And you didn't notice, but I was terrified because because I here I am, someone that doesn't know much about the criminal justice system that's coming to tell a whole office of attorneys about bias within the criminal justice system. But your office is different. And it was so well received. It was it was such it, it produced such wonderful conversations because this is an agenda that is who you all are. And I, I want to talk about uh, some of the, the things that you all are doing to to bring more justice to this system. And um, a couple of the gentlemen you 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 spoke about and um, you, you created uh, an, an office, a unit uh, known as the Conviction Integrity Unit. Tell us about that. So the Conviction Integrity Unit is a unit that uh, literally focuses on uh, potential wrongful convictions. Talking about pushback, man, I got a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Uh, So when I got here in this office, it was that McIntyre case that I was met with. And I was met with that case that was before we had the conviction integrity unit. So for seven months, I personally uh, had to investigate that case, go to prisons, federal prisons, talk to folks who were there 20 some odd years ago and ultimately reached that conclusion that uh, we believe a manifest injustice existed in this case and that there's no way a, a double homicide uh, investigation from start to finish was complete in six hours. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, the state attorney general agreed. Well, with that case, I literally uh, prayed, and and it came to the conclusion that if there's one, there has to be more. Sadly, that's true. Uh, and so, uh, I I knew that as the uh, chief DA, I I didn't have at that point when I first started was that was my first year, so that I just made it a priority. But as time went on, I had way more things added to my plate. And so we created a unit, a conviction integrity unit and housed a senior district attorney in there uh, whose job was to review those uh, applications from uh, inmates, lawyers, defendants, and whomever else who says that there were, there were some constitutional violations in their case. There were foul play uh, things that occurred. There was some situations that Uh, got them here wrongfully. And what that unit specializes in uh, is not simply exonerating people, but more so looking in depth at the actual proceeding and the evidence to see if there were any constitutional due process violations. And if so, then to recommend to me uh, on whether or not we should allow them a new trial 
agree for them to a new trial. And then the next phase after that is to determine whether or not we believe this person is actually innocent and we should try the case or not try it at all. Wow. Well, and earlier you talked a, a little bit about uh, the prosecutorial discretion that allows, uh, you know, DAs to decide what's charged and what's not charged. Can you talk about anything that you are doing or, or, or plan to do uh, to address some of the bias that that exists in that decision itself? There is so much involved in the in that decision, which is it, kind of going back to uh, why I brought you in uh, for that training. Uh, discretionary authority is something that the district attorneys have uh, to really try to include all of the evidence and all the facts. But here's the reality. How a person is raised, what a person's beliefs are, what a person thinks about certain people all play a major part in how they utilize that discretion. And if you have a bias uh, against a certain group of people uh, for whatever reason, then it's going to show up in how you utilize your discretion if that certain group of people are involved. Or if you have an affinity, right, toward a certain group of people, because uh, it, it, discretionary authority can be utilized in a bad way, but it also can be used in a good way, right? And that's where you have, you know, if the victim was the mayor's son or a uh, a big shot son or child, then we really want to go after him. Versus the victim was, you know, uh, some poor individual who may be a minority who doesn't have any political ties, doesn't have a college degree, and for all intent and purposes, quote unquote, is a nobody, right? Uh, well, you know, this might, it's a little hard. And geographically speaking, uh, you know, they live in the high crime area. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I realized where I grew up was, was a high crime area. And so you got many of cases that happen where there are predominantly poor black and brown folks. And those cases are, are declined. Uh, whereas you go to the prestige, uh, more economically uh, stable or fluent community or neighborhoods, then those cases are uh, from the murder down to the, the traffic ticket. They are charged, charged, charged. And so there are biases that that can play a huge part in how you utilize that discretion and that can determine uh, your charging decisions if you are not, again, aware of what those biases are and then deal with them and check them at the door. Well, D.A. Dupree, Mark, uh, as I know you, this is wonderful. I, I, I just know people are going to appreciate your insight and, you know, just being someone who knows you, but also has family in the area that you serve. Uh, I, I'm glad you're there uh, and I've always admired you. Uh, and and I look forward to kind of seeing what what you do next, uh, what wh whatever that may be. So again, thank you so much for taking the time. It's it's, it's been a pleasure. I always learn so much talking to you. So th thank you very much. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate this opportunity, and I appreciate the work that you have done and continue to do. Uh, and we're not done yet. I was 14 when I met my first black lawyer, which gave me the mindset that I can do this. And as we look out and I see you, doctor, 
And uh, I look and see what we're doing here. We are literally paving the road for generations to come. Absolutely. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Jabron Pasha, on Instagram at What Medicine Did, and on UnlockingImplicitBias.com. Thanks for leaning in with me. <laughs>